I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. G'day and welcome to High Resolution. I'm Chris Button, content producer at Biteside. Wildflowers, a cosy life and farming sim with a witchy twist, launched via Apple Arcade earlier this year and has since become one of the top games on the subscription service. In Wildflowers, you play as Tara, who moves to a charming rural island to help out her grandma and the family farm. Wildflowers is made by Studio Drydock, a remote studio founded by former EA developers. Amanda Schofield, Studio Drydock co-founder and creative director on Wildflowers, joined me on High Resolution to discuss her time working on The Sims franchise, the challenges of founding a remote studio, and what goes into making diverse characters. A little content warning about blood for the first minute or two of the chat, because I asked Amanda when she knew she wanted to be involved in video games, which involved a veterinary career that didn't pan out. (laughs) Well, that was actually a bit of a funny story. Um, So I always wanted to be a vet. I've wanted to be a vet for as long as I can remember. It's all my parents ever knew. Um, And when I was in high school, I did work experience at a vet clinic and there was this sheep that come in and it, um, it was somebody's prized merino breeding sheep and it needed an operation. And oh my God, I learned how much blood can come out of a sheep. There is so much blood that can come out of a sheep that they have to like erect sandbags around the sheep. Oh my Um, goodness. So so immediately after doing work experience, I thought, what else am I passionate about? And um, it, it kind of really hit home that my entire life games have always kind of been there. They've been something that I've been really excited about. Um, and, and kind of lost myself in. Um, but also that even at work experience, I was still kind of really drawn to computers and I was um, like doing data entry and fixing up their software and things like that. Um, so it just made perfect sense to me that I would find a career path that led to m- making games myself. Um, and so from there, it was just, you know, changing everything. Hi, mom and dad, I'm going to do programming now. What? <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, how how did that go down? I imagine that would have been a little bit of a surprise. Uh, well, I think the problem with teens is that um, we're always very sure of what we want and very bad at articulating why. Um, so I was as emphatic about this as I had ever been about being a vet and I knew exactly why it was in an emotional sense and it took me years, I think, to kind of 
get back to explaining it in sort of, hey, did you know about sheep? <laughs> um, but they um, they were super supportive, of course, um, and, you know, just wanted me to be happy and to do the things that made me happy. So, yeah, it was all fine after that. <laughs> oh, wonderful. And from sort of throughout your career or whether prior to starting your career in video games, is there a, a video game that either you've played or you've worked on that you feel has had the the, the strongest influence on your career to date? <laughs> Easily The Sims. Um, yeah. it, it, it is hard to deny that The Sims has shaped my life in video games and around video games. Um, so when I was just, when I was a child, all of Maxis's games were inspirational to me. Um, I sort of loved all of the Maxis simulation games that they were bringing out in the 90s. And um, when The Sims came out, it kind of blew everybody's mind and I was there with everyone else. And then when I started working in Iron Monkey, it was just, it, it was incredible that I was able to actually work on it. And so I made a couple of expansions there. And I guess through having so much passion for the game and having spent so much time in and around it. Um, the studio was uh, kind enough to see something in me that they thought meant that I could lead the team and help us kind of shape the direction of The Sims in the future. And that meant that I got to work really closely with Maxis, who I'd always seen as an idol. And they're all just such lovely people there. So, yeah, it made me feel at home and a part of the family. And I got to work with them. I got to work with other people who just loved the brand. And, you know, it was the first time that I was kind of sitting on a tram in Melbourne and saw across the way somebody playing a game that I had worked on because everybody knows The Sims, even people who think oh, I'm not really into video games. Like this conversation often happens at a party or while I'm getting my hair done or something, they'll say, oh, you work in video games. So oh, that's interesting. Um, I'm not really into games, but, you know, what do you work on? Maybe I've heard of it. And I say, oh, you know, I worked on The Sims and they say, oh, I love The Sims. The Sims is great. Like, well, <laughs> you know, a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, The Sims has always been in and around my career and um, something that I've loved and I've played all the expansions I still follow and, yeah, it's hard to get away from and I wouldn't want to if I could. <laughs> it's very interesting that you mentioned speaking with people who, quote unquote, aren't necessarily into games or they don't see themselves as a gamer. And yet you, you mention the Sims and their faces light up and say, yes, yes, I love the Sims or I've played a lot of Sims. And it's, it's interesting sort of seeing where you are now with Studio Dry Dock and having released Wild Flowers, you know, creating games for, you know, suited for different types of audiences, like the, the Sims caters towards a different audience than, say, you know, a lot of other AAA games and that sort of thing. So what, what was it initially that drew you towards The Sims and really enjoying the franchise there? So I think like a lot of people who, well, I mean, as you mentioned, people play these kinds of games for all different sorts of reasons, which is why they tend to be such broad games. But um, there is some self-exploration, discovery, creativity, and a little bit of strategic problem solving. And those elements, I think, kind of go into every game that I'm super passionate about. Um, even if it's an RPG or something like that, then the ones that I'm most attached to are the ones that give me a little bit of that as well. For The Sims, I mean, Maxis just has such a brilliant way of, of chasing down the fun in any of their prototypes. And so, um, I mean, famously it was known that that was originally a 
a game about architecture and they were you know they they were able to set that aside that is no longer our goal because we have found something more special which is about people and um i think all of the games in these realms kind of they they do that they give you an insight into being present in a game world um that you might not otherwise be able to do like i i have experienced so many different lifestyles as part of the sims and um the farming sims do the same sort of thing and um i think i think that's those are the games that draw me in is where i can where i can be in their world and experience it do you have a particular favorite sims entry or expansion and it is absolutely fine to say what you've worked on uh, but yeah very, <laughs> very very curious as to whether there's a particular sims entry that stands out to you as a personal favorite so all Sims games at some point or another will end up with a pets expansion, um, the Sims Free Play included, and those are always my favourite games. And um, the team that was working with me at Fire Monkeys will tell you that I was I was <laughs> always pushing pretty hard for for those kinds of updates. And and those are the, those are the ones that I that I can't wait for when there's a new uh, entry into the series. It's you know just patiently waiting for them to finally get around to doing the pets part because i want to see what they've done this time i guess this is this is makes sense when you think i come from that vet wannabe background so <laughs> it it all comes full circle doesn't it yeah uh, so to the sims free play tell us a, a little bit about your your work there and what your level of involvement was and how how your time was working on The Sims Free Play, such a, a notable mobile entry for EA in general. Yeah, I mean, it's... So I worked in many different capacities across that game uh, because I worked on it for the vast majority of my time at EA. Um, it was, uh, for those that don't know, it's been around for a decade now, just about, and... Um, I was involved before before it launched. I was working on the previous title as a programmer. And at that time, Iron Monkey was not very designer heavy. Um, it's fairly common for the mobile studios. They start with just kind of art and engineering and design is something that's grown into over time. And so um, the engineers often had the design document written in code uh, in comments. So like, it'd be great if we added a feature here. So... That kind of led to we should build a new version of The Sims game on on iPad at that time was just coming out and it was considered to be quite advanced hardware. And um, my pitch was something along the lines of it can do everything that a, that a PC can do. There's no reason we couldn't make a Sims 3-esque style game on iPad. And so we, we did that uh, and we got very close to launching it. And by that time, free-to-play has just started to take off. And some executives kind of came to the studio and they're like, there's this new thing. We think it's going to be a really big deal. We can see it's growing in the market. We think The Sims is the perfect license to do it with. Do you want to change this one over or do you want to make a new one? And we said, oh, well, no, I mean, we don't want to make another game. This is the game. So let's turn this into the free-to-play game. And um, that's when um, Jared, the lead designer, came across and we worked for several months uh, to kind of revise what we were going to do with The Sims in a free-to-play space, which we had to learn about at the time. And I'm so glad we did. I think at the time I was a bit trepidatious. You know, this is our baby. We just finished building it. What are we doing? (laughs) 
But the end result, so in my time with the studio, we released 55 updates for The Sims Freeplay. Um, and none of them were small. Not one of Sims Freeplay's updates is a little entry. They're all huge. If we had to release that original game, it would have done okay and people would have liked it and we would have put out maybe two expansions to it and that would have been the end. So the game that people have gotten to experience because of that decision has has been so much more. And for the vast majority, they've, you know, never had to put a cent into the game. It's just an experience they've got to play because of that free-to-play journey. So I learned so much about live service. Somewhere along the line, I moved across from engineering to production because a lot of what I was doing was that at that stage. Um And so we learned so much about how to listen to players, like really listen. We were putting out surveys, customer support surveys in the game every few weeks. Um, And that was feeding into what our content strategy would be for the future. So um, we'd know what people wanted most and that would bubble to the top of our plans for future updates. And it taught us to kind of set aside our ego. I mean, game developers and their creativity is necessary to make a successful game. But if the player isn't at the center of what you're doing and why, then it always misses the mark. And we learn so much about how to, you know, I think we, I think players want this, but they're telling me they don't, they're telling me they want something else. And uh, we were kind of famous or I was uh, annoyingly perpetual in a statement that I would say to the team, which is nobody wants a space station. Uh, which is like in all of our surveys, all of the game developers would come onto the team and say, I have an idea. It's going to be so great. We're going to build this amazing space station. It'll be the Sims in space. Everybody's going to love it. It's like the one piece of content because players don't ever say, I don't want content. They only ever say, in the absence of other information, I would rather have X content rather than Y content. Um, and so that was the one piece of content in our history where they were just like, nope, don't want it, don't want to see it, don't really need it. And <laughs> I'm sure there are players out there who are screaming, like, of course I want it. But in the you know millions of people that we'd be talking to, it was very clear that that was not something that was top of mind for players and they would much rather see some pregnancy clothes or, you know, horses for the first time or these sorts of things than um, – than a space station. So <laughs> we never built one. Maybe they have now. I don't know. <laughs> that's that's fascinating to, to hear and especially what you were saying about with The Sims Free Play being so successful over an extended period of time, whereas there may not have been that sustained success had it just been a standalone non-live service title. And it's, it's such a stark contrast to what you hear a lot of the commentary about mobile games or free-to-play games being predatory in terms of their monetization and, and that sort of thing. So it's really nice to hear about a game that has gone the free-to-play model and seems like it really respects the player's investment in terms of time and or money for those who uh, may have in- invested along the way. With with that being such a a big brand new thing when you're first working on it in terms of the live service model, the free-to-play model, how much of a change in mindset was that from a development, a designer, a production standpoint to the the old model, I suppose, of developing a game, shipping it, maybe an expansion or two, and then we're on to the next thing? Yeah, well, I mean, it really, it had to change the way we think think about it. Um, so the games that turn out to be predatory and turn out to be 
feeling like you're really fighting the game mechanics um, in order for them to make money are because the team, or, or generally speaking, are because the team don't embrace that it is a free-to-play game. So historically, game developers would build a game if they did the very best job they could and there was an audience for that game, then they would hand that over to marketing and publishing and they would put that out and the game would be successful if they did a good job. Um, but there was always this kind of removal between the, pe- the creators of the game um, and the result of whether or not the game made any money. Like you can, you can say it was marketed incorrectly or, you know, maybe the audience wasn't there and we thought it was, but it's never really down to the individuals on the team as long as they do their job, which is to make a really fun game. If you run a free-to-play game like that, you will fail. But if you're taking a brand that is as important to the world as The Sims is and you don't respect the hell out of that while you're trying to make a free-to-play game, then it's very hard to make it turn a profit. Um, So, I mean, we had to learn so much because we were sitting in such an interesting space where we had younger players who were preteen, um, or, or sorry, early teen. Um, so we had these young players, and w- we obviously didn't want to empty their piggy banks. So what can we do? Well, as it happens, young people tend to have a lot more time on their hands than older people who might have some money to share. And so what we learned is if we were carefully curating what kinds of ads we could show them so that they were only looking at other games that would be sensible for them to play, we could show quite a lot of ads because they were happy to spend some time doing that as long as it meant that they could get back into the game. And so we could do things like that, which meant that we were still, you know, making enough money to keep the game going because the game was only going to go on for as long as people were there to play it and we were getting some kind of funds out of it. So we, we, we had to learn things like that. And the only way that the game team learns it is if they take responsibility for it. And so we had economists built into the team and, um, you know, we shared with, all of the team, what the results were from previous updates so that they had an understanding of what content worked and what players were interested in. And I honestly think that is the foundation of why Fire Monkeys has been so successful um, as a studio at capturing players' imaginations across free-to-play, across so many different brands. Yeah, and now with your venture at Studio Dry Dock. At what point in your journey with Fire Monkeys did you come to the point where it's time for me to start a new studio or you know found found a studio? So tell me about the beginnings of Studio Dry Dock. Right. Uh, so Alex and I, Alex is the other co-founder for Studio Dry Dock. We knew we were going to start a studio a decade ago. Um, it was just a matter of when, and so. I didn't want to start a studio when if if I didn't have the capacity to make it a long-lasting venture. I didn't want to say, "Hey, come on board. We've got this cool thing happening." And say, "Oh, hang on a minute. I've failed to pitch this game to anyone or I've run out of money or actually I have no idea how to run a studio." And so I was waiting for the right time in my career to know that I had I had the leadership skills to manage a team. I understood enough about culture building and and creating a culture within a studio to to kind of shape that in the direction that I wanted it to go, and that I had enough connections with within the industry to know what it takes to get a game across the line, uh, because there are so many people outside of the studio that are necessary in order to make a game successfully, and that is relationships. No matter how you slice it, whether you're making them 
just you've started a studio and you're making them for the first time or you've known this person for a decade, it always comes down to relationships. So it's kind of only just a few years ago where I really felt like I had that trifecta down, that I, I had the right network, I had the right idea about how to build a team and the right idea about how to make a culture. And I think based on Wildflowers, but more importantly, based on the team that made Wildflowers, I think that was the right call. I think that was the right time because more important than the, that the game has been successful and has been loved by so many people is that the team who made it came out of it really enjoying that experience and that was what was important to me. Yeah, there's such an important part of game development as a lot of people, including players and fans of games alike, are more aware of the conditions under which games are made. And I know one of the unique things about Studio Dry Dock is that it's a remote studio employing people from all around the world. It's not just an Australian studio by nature. It's got lots of people uh, in North America that I've seen as well. So how how did you achieve that that positive experience for the team being in such a distributed envi- uh, distributed environment? Well, it was a lot of trial and error at the start and we were lucky enough um, that we made a few lucky calls uh, early on. So Alex and I didn't originally intend to make a studio that was fully remote. Um, at first we thought we would build a prototype for our first game with remote people and then um, once we had that game greenlit, then we would, you know, find a brick and mortar studio location and set it up that way. Um, so the prototype, which turned out to be four wildflowers, needed a bit of everything. It needed an animator. We needed a writer to come in. There was, you know, UI. There was all sorts of things we needed to put together to get the prototype ready. And the people that we got applying Well, we knew that we couldn't just hire in Melbourne because we needed it kind of quickly. We only had these really short-term contracts and we didn't want to wait around for all of those because that level of seniority is very hard just to find on the spot where you are. And so we thought, well, it's just the prototype and, you know, it's just an experiment. So let's see who we get if we just go wide. Um, And so we did that. And, oh, my God, the people who applied for the job were some of the most talented people I have ever met in the industry And these people were working freelance because they, I mean, for so many different reasons, people go into freelance, some people because they have no other choice, but for some people, it's a lifestyle choice. It's, you know, you get to work from home, you get to set your own hours, you get to decide what projects you're going to be involved in. Um, And so there are some, there are some advantages and those were the kind of people that we were finding. They were very senior people who had done that kind of work for a long time which meant that they really understood how to work remotely. They were incredible at communication because, you know, freelance is often on the outskirts of the team and it's, you know, make us these 17 things and get back to us when it's done. So they were very used to those kind of conditions and we were offering them all of that, but we were also saying, and we want you to decide what the animation style is or tell me what the characters are going to look like. And so, oh, hang on a minute, I get to call the shots as well is like, an added benefit that these people may not have had much exposure to as a freelancer. And so Alex and I have come away from this prototype working with 
incredible people who are also so lovely and supportive because, you know, if you're working freelance and remote, then you learn that communication is important in that respect as well. You have to, you have to, you have to make sure that people understand that you're coming from a good place and that all of, all of your feedback or communication is meant with the best possible intent. Um, and so Alex and I have come away and we've gone, well, can we make this work? Can we, can we figure out how to make this scale? And, and we were also starting to see some traction in terms of scale of people who are applying because, you know, we're getting a bit of notice on Twitter from the game dev community. And so we put out a job ad for an environment artist and had 650 applicants. Oh, wow. So that adds problems because <laughs> we're a small team trying to get through 650 applicants, but it adds really great opportunity as well because it meant when we were bringing in people we could we could dig a little deeper you know who has more interesting background and isn't the the same old resume that I've seen 20 of before you know who can bring a new perspective that we haven't seen before on the team that will add that extra color to the game because we're trying to build these diverse games we also need a really diverse team to do that and we could do that many people who worked on on our prototype and also on the finished product were first time in the industry or this was kind of their first opportunity where they got ownership over some parts of the project. And so we had an opportunity to give people an experience they could go on to use for their next jobs. And some have kind of landed their dream jobs as a result of, I've done this, I've already done this, I'm certain that I can do it. And I'm sure a lot of that is just the confidence of being able to say, yeah, I can because I have before. So there were those kind of benefits, but a lot of it just comes down to changing your communication style. So meetings are the <laughs> the the bane, but also the necessity of every game, uh, because in a meeting you get a lot of communication, you get a lot of discussion, you get a lot of ideas, and that's true, but it also disadvantages some people. So if English is a second language and your meeting is in English, then there are people who are not just listening to what you're saying and thinking of answers or thinking of problems. They're also translating on the spot. So if the conversation is moving very quickly and everybody's very excited, then those people are kind of left behind. Um, other people, if you're familiar with Myers-Briggs, people who identify as introverts, which is just, you know, anyone where they prefer very small groups of people rather than large groups of people, um, Meetings can be hard because everybody's just shooting from the from the hip, right? Um, oh, I've got an idea. Why don't we try this? But the some of the introvert people might prefer to, like, can I go away and have a think about it and come back to you when I've kind of formulated what I want to say and what I think about it? And so you have all these great meetings and then you come out of them the other end and somebody will inevitably come up to you and give you a piece of wisdom that is just, okay, everything has just been invalidated from that meeting and it's because they had time to think about it and to formulate their thoughts and come back to you. And so by making all of our communication asynchronous, it solves, I mean, it doesn't solve everything, but it solves a lot of those problems because um, you can deal with the time zones. So if, if all communication needs 24 hours before it's kind of finished, then it's enough time for everybody's time zones to come into play. Um, or you can also, you know, give those people who like that time to think, they have that time as well because they don't have to respond immediately in order to be considered. Um, so it does that sort of thing, but it, it makes it hard to um, to kind of get to know people. It's You don't get those water cooler moments that you do 
or in Melbourne, it's the coffee machine. So, <laughs> so we missed out on some of that stuff. And so we would do things like, um, we had a meeting every week. We called it the gathering, which was mandatory. Well, not mandatory, but you tried to make it if you could. And it was two hours long. It was set in a time when most people would be able to get there comfortably. And it was mostly just show and tell, like, what have you been working on this week? What's going on? But it was just an opportunity to kind of see each other and talk through whatever problems were kind of across lots of disciplines and things like that. Um, so we had that as kind of the main social space and make sure that everybody says something and has, has an opportunity to kind of get to know how people think so that you better understand what they're saying when they're writing in text. So that's why we only ever work in kind of two quadrants of the time zone. Um, so for this project, it was America and Australia, but not it, not Europe and not um, Africa, because if we did that, then the gathering would end up being at 2 a.m. and someone will inevitably say, oh, I'm happy to work at 2 a.m. and I'm not happy to make you work at 2 a.m. <laughs> so um, Fair enough. Yeah, but so, I mean, it, it's certainly, it's just a different way of working and so it will favour some people and it will disadvantage some people. Um, but it is a different set than the ones who were in an office. So um, it, different people gravitate towards it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Yeah, so when you were hosting the, the gathering, how many people are at Studio Dry Dock, Dry Dock now or how, how many have been there during the, the peak of the development period? Yeah, so that was another thing that Alex and I wanted to take in a new direction um, for the studio. So game development came out of software engineering and software engineering is picture cubicles, big rooms full of offices. This is not how software engineering is anymore, but this is where it came from. And so... Teams were perpetual. You would pick a you would pick a company, you know, in our sort of parents' generation. You would pick a company and you would stay at that company for twenty years. And so, when games came about, that's what they were doing. They were just, you know, let's hire on a bunch of people and we'll build games together, and that's how we'll work forever. But the problem is that games they they have ebbs and flows. At the start of a project, you only want a very small number of people so that you can solidify the idea. Then when you scale, especially if you scale to 200, 300, 400 people as some of these games are now, the idea is fully solidified and everybody can understand it. They come on, they help build this massive project and then the game stops because you've shipped it. Um, less true now for live service, but even live service, they tend to shrink down to smaller teams to manage it. 
um, for so many different reasons, but there are definitely ebbs and flows. And so to be a successful studio at any scale, um, you kind of need to have the next project halfway ready before the first project is finished um, so that you have somewhere for that massive group of people to go when the game is shipped. And then you you inevitably end up scaling your studio because you've got two projects on the go and they both have needs and so you grow. But now you have two teams worth of people that need need something to do when those games are finished. So you've got to have two projects ready for them when they're finished. And that's how studios grow and grow and grow and grow. And then in in the most heartbreaking, horrible way, they end up shrinking because they had no choice because you can't manage that many projects or you failed to pick up that extra one that you needed. And then you do the whole process all over again and it's very stressful for everyone involved. And so what we thought is maybe we could manage something that was more of a hybrid where you have a very small group of people who are the core team who help you figure out the vision. And everybody who comes on to kind of do the bigger tasks are part of sort of more like the film industry. You know, we've got this project, we're all going to come on, we're going to do it, and then it's going to be done we'll move on. And so we structured this very first game that way so that we would have the core team who figured out what the game was, which is about seven of us, and then once the project was signed, we brought on, we scaled up to 25 internal. There's about 230 people across the world who ended up working on the project in one capacity or another. So we could scale up to that. But everybody had an understanding that there was an end date, that this was not a perpetual, full-time, long-term kind of job. This is what we're coming together. We're going to make a thing. We're going to help you find your next job. And that was really important to us, that we were building an alumni kind of culture with the people who came on to work with us because we were learning a lot about the problems that freelancers face, having hired a bunch of them to be our leads team. So we wanted to make sure that when people were coming on, that they had this network of people now who would help offer them, you know, there's a new job at this new place that I'm at. They're looking for a concept artist. You're a fantastic concept artist. I'd be happy to put put in a good word for you. Uh, and so we've set up a Discord for everyone who's worked at the studio so that there's some way for them to talk about that sort of thing. Hey, there's an art job over here. Um, every time you see any of them post on Twitter, everyone else will jump on and kind of spread the word about them. And so hopefully having worked at Studio Dreidel means they've got, you know, one extra rung on the ladder makes them a little closer to it being easier to kind of keep finding gigs. So that's how we ran this project, I don't know what our plans are for the next one. It will depend on what we do next. But um, I think probably something like that is a lot healthier for the studio and is kind of more true to life to the team as well. You know, the project will end and then we won't know what's going to happen next is the truth of the matter. So uh, it's better if we can be upfront about that when they're coming on. Yeah, and it sounds like you've created this this really great community feel with with the developers and like you say the the alumni sort of approach as well taking it back to the beginning of wildflowers working on this prototype which you mentioned did uh, eventuate as being wildflowers why a cozy farming life sim game how how did this come come to fruition i guess a lot of my thought process came from working on The Sims Free Play. So what we learned by being so close to the players is we did a lot of experimentation across a lot of different updates. And what I learned is that there are a lot of players who really want to create their own stories, but then they also like to 
sample somebody else's story. So um, just because you want to tell your own story and you want to, you know, be the creator of this world doesn't mean that you hate other people's stories. Um, it just means that, you know, you want to have that as part of it. And I have always loved the Harvest Moon series. Yes, I said Harvest Moon, not Stardew Valley. Stardew Valley is beautiful. But as the developer of that game will tell you, that was also an homage to Harvest Moon. And so we both kind of have this passion for the for the genre, I would say at this point, because there are so many in the in the field now. And so what I got to thinking about is hang on a minute, if I'm seeing all of these players and there's a lot of crossover between a game like The Sims and the Harvest Moon genre of games, life simulation, farming games, and they're saying that they would like to see more story, the farming simulation games have always had a story component in them and it's it can get quite deep and there are some, you know, people have a lot of connection with the characters in those worlds. But I started thinking, I wonder how much deeper you can go. You know, how how far can we stretch this? Because I have to talk to these people every single day. Imagine if they weren't just talking about what nice weather it is today. Um, <laughs> it was kind of the starting point. Um, and also from the beginning, Alex and I both said we really wanted to make sure that we were tackling themes that we thought were front of mind for, for people. And so... Um, you know, if I'm going to tell a story, I want it to say something about the world and not just be, you know, a fun romp, <laughs> although, of course, that's important as well. And so we we started to think, okay, well, can we go a little bit darker? Like, And so what we, what we tended to think of as a slow-boiling frog is it's an incredibly cosy game and, you know, nothing bad will happen to you. But, you know, there's some there's some mysterious things going on and, you know, it's not always all sunshine and flowers. So we we were able to kind of build quite a deep world. We were able to take it pretty far. You do have to talk to people every day. So learning a little bit about their history or, you know, how did you end up on this island? Why are you here? What makes you think? That was really easy to add. And, you know, how broad can we go with the kind of people that are here? And witches were just a natural add. Um, <laughs> that was... Um, you know, we wanted to talk a bit about prejudice because it's been, well, for forever, it has been such an important topic for us to cover. And we wanted to do it in such a way where everybody could approach it and see it as if it were applying to them. Um, and so we, you know, you're all witches. That's the problem. You're a witch and people have prejudices, these preconceived no notions about what a witch is, and you have to deal with that. But maybe that'll help you see how other people's prejudices can be really difficult for them to live with as well. So yeah, it was it was just kind of it was a natural for me a natural evolution of the genre, and we're just taking one extra step in that direction. You know, deeper characters and deeper story, and maybe a little bit more realism to the world. And I think it's paid off. Yeah. Yeah, I. I absolutely concur based on my experience with the game so far. One of the things I found really, really interesting in terms of how Wildflowers does explore these themes of prejudice and exploring themes of marginalised community groups and there's, as we've mentioned, great representation, diversity, uh, especially of various members of the LGBTQIA plus community. How, how did you manage to strike the, the balance in tone in terms of 
the the conflict and some of the prejudice that these characters can encounter versus you know creating this this cozy experience that is approachable warm and welcoming for players yeah well i mean a lot of that is just making sure that you have either on the team or access to people who can speak with their own personal experience or experience from the community um and so that was super ben- beneficial but as I mentioned, we're only 25 people, so there was really no way for us to manage that entire scope. And we filled a lot of those gaps with um, with consultants, with cultural consultants, and made quite a lot of changes over the course of the game thanks to some really brilliant um, support from THN, the help network. We're able to bring on quite a lot of consultants from everything from what is a Kurapira demon and how do you represent it in a way that makes sense for people from Brazil to how do you how do you truly represent Romani in a way that is respectful respectful and so those those were really important but we also we did a lot of play testing and we spent a lot of time with players trying to understand how people were making them feel because if we were going to put someone in the game I, a lot of people have said that the relationship between Angus and Francis is particularly memorable just because they seem real it feels like a real couple who are just ordinary people and they happen to be gay and there's a lot going on with them and not all of it has to do with their relationship. And it was it was really just making sure that we had thought more about who the character was, the Bibles for our characters. I think the last time I looked at it, it was something like 155 pages across the characters. And they're deep. They're complex. They, um, you know, a lot of people have asked us, why can't you date Violet? And the answer is Violet is straight. She just is. That is who the character is. And the reason that Violet feels real is because we stayed true to who that character was all the way down the line. Even though she's amazing and we'd all love to date her, she's straight. And that makes everyone feel more real because, you know, Amira is more believable because that's who we made her be. So I think I think it's it's a lot of intention. It was always there from day one. There is more that I would do in the next game for sure that we, we learned a lot along the way and there were things we would do differently if we did it over. But um, I think those are kind of the big takeaways is just kind of keeping it front of mind and making people who happen to be of a diverse background rather than making diverse people so that you have them in your game. And speaking of people wanting to date Violet uh, and other characters that people may have been drawn towards. That's one thing that's very, very clear about wildflowers in the game. And I've also seen mentions of this in some of the social media promotion as well, is that this is very much Tara's story. And as you alluded to before, people like creating their own stories, but they also like being told stories as well. Was it an easy or a difficult decision to decide, yes, this is going to be a very specific character's story, or was there a little bit of pushback in thinking, no, this should be like some of the other farming games where you play more of a a blank slate protagonist? Yeah, well, I mean, it was because it was a foundation of the vision. It was something that, um, you know, everything else had to move around that idea. And if it didn't work, then we'll scrap it and we'll go in a different direction with a different game. But that was fundamental to what we were trying to do with the game. Um, and it had a lot of consequences. I think the most change to the genre is because of that decision. So things like 
I don't want to spoil things for people, but the way that seasons work in our game, everybody says, why don't I have a calendar? And the answer is because seasons are different lengths, but I can't explain exactly why right now, but it will make sense to you later. And that decision was because we were trying to tell a story and we needed kind of chapter ends, I guess, so that we could start the next chapter and it would all, all the characters would be talking about the same thing and not uh, this person's like, whoa, why haven't you planted your garden plots yet? And somebody else is like, oh no, the sky's falling down. So um, that doesn't happen in the game, by the way. That's not a spoiler, people. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's it's an alternate director's cut. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's on the cutting room floor. And so, um, and there were so many decisions like that. A lot of people ask us, why isn't there a, a male alternate character? And well, the first answer to that question is because it's Tara's story. And if we wrote a different character, like just like for Violet, Violet is straight because she is straight. That's who she is. Then if I wrote a different person instead of Tara, they would have different hangups and different concerns and, uh, you know, it's a whole different game at that point um, and we're talking about someone else. But the other reason is because I have played, you know, I mean, Uncharted is an incredible experience and I've always had to play as a man and that's okay. That's just what this, the this story is about Nathan. So I think it's important that people, you know, have to step out of their shoes a little bit. And it's a big departure for this genre because, as you know, I've talked about that people like to tell stories about themselves. But I think that's part, part, of the, part of the confrontation of the game and part of coming to terms with what you're playing is that you are playing as Tara, not as you, which maybe means you can play it a bit differently to what you would normally do, I guess. <laughs> Mm. And from my experience playing Wildflowers so far, Tara is a wonderful character. So I would highly recommend people checking it out because there's so many lovely interactions with the characters to encounter, a lot of which are elevated by the wonderful voice acting. Please tell us about the process of all the, the, the casting and the recording of all the voice acting because it's, it's phenomenal. It's, it's something that is very, very, unusual for the genre dare I say if we didn't have voice acting and we didn't have the cast and we didn't have the voice director that we ended up with it would be a completely different game Um, and I wouldn't be talking about a narrative game which happens to be a life simulation I would be talking about a life simulation that happens to have a lot of text because it's a little bit longer than war and peace uh, the script so (laughs) so there's a lot of text if it were all just text so that is actually entirely because of apple they they said to me, and I have never, I've never in my life ever had this question asked of me before. They said, if you could do, if you could add anything to it to make it bigger, what would you be adding? And I said, hands down, voiceover, it's missing. It's, you know, there's a lot of fantastic games in Asia that are fully voiced often by um, pop idols or, or famous actors. And it's just a matter of time before it becomes an expectation. I think it's really missing from this game, especially if we're going to focus on story. I would really love to have voice acting. They said, do it. I'm like, um, are you sure? They're like, do it. <laughs> like, okay. Um, and so then we went, oh, no, we have to figure out how. <laughs> um, and so I asked around um, some of the local game devs. Uh, there's a really fantastic community here and uh, people like Liam Esler. I would like to thank you because without you, I wouldn't have known what to do. He passed me on to Sissy Jones, who um, is the voice of Hazel. And Sissy just wrote me an essay on what I needed to do and what it would cost and how I would structure it and 
pointed me at a couple of studios and we spoke to them. We ended up speaking to the help network and they were just the same people as us. Um, Julia, who ended up doing our casting, she was so, it was so important to her that we could represent the voices we were trying to represent. And so she, she has this incredible network of actors that are not the standard people that you would necessarily see in every other game. They had to, they, they go quite wide because they often have very diverse casts. And I said to her, if I'm bringing on this fantastic cast and a lot of these people maybe aren't as experienced because they haven't done as many games as other people, I don't know that I can necessarily just use the same old voice director, can I? And she said, I'm so glad you said that because I've been thinking the same thing. And I said, well, who would you, who would you use? And she said, I've been waiting for an opportunity for Kritzia to voice direct for a very long time because she said every time somebody lands an audition that she didn't expect them to land, she'll look back into their past and find out that they did a class with Kritzia. So I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And as soon as I met her, I knew she was perfect for the job. She was, she was, she just immediately creates that safe space that lets people be who they need to be. But more importantly than that, because she's an actor herself, she was able to play the other side because we, we recorded this whole thing during COVID. So there was only ever one person in the booth at a time, but she would act the other half. And so, and she was amazing at remembering how she got the voice of Tara is Valerie Rose Lohman, how, how she got Val to act during this particular scene. So then when she was doing the other half of it, she was playing the way that Val would have played it. And what I learned, um, being fairly new to being in the booth myself, um, what I learned is that they don't often, voice actors don't often get a chance to act in the booth because so many lines are in video games and so many of them are just grenade. They tend to get these massive scripts and they just read through them. This isn't true of the big narrative games that you're thinking of, This is, but this is fairly common, especially in mobile games. And so um, there are all these people and they're like, oh, I get to act against you. Yeah, I'd love to do that. That sounds exciting. And so, um, you know, they had a lot of fun with it and it was, it was acting. They were just acting and that's why it feels so real and their characters, there's so much emotion. If it sounds like they're crying, they probably were. Um, <laughs> if, it, if they were laughing, they were probably doing that too. It was a lot of fun. So, and that's that's kind of how you end up with something that's special at the other end. Mm. And you mentioned a significant part of Wildflowers having voice acting was thanks to Apple's involvement. At what point of development did they get involved and how, how did they help with wildflowers what was their involvement this game was built in in concert with them so they are the publishers for the game so um responsible for quite a lot of it actually um but they so they played the prototype a bit over two years ago they played the prototype and said this really seems like something that we'd love to get involved with actually it was a bit more than two years ago because it was right before covid became a whole big thing and so uh, it took a little while for us to kind of get across the line, but they kept saying, you know, we really want to be involved. This sounds like a really great project. This is definitely something we want to help with. And they have helped. They've been really supportive. There's been people on their side who have kind of given us their creative feedback, a lot of which has made the game as strong as it is on mobile. Um, even though we come from that background, they just had that kind of outsider's perspective that you need sometimes. And yeah, they've they've helped us with promotion. They've helped us with getting the word out about the game. And obviously, their their massive audience on Apple Arcade has 
been an incredible experience for us. We've been able to see the game in people's hands and hear from players. And though it will be coming to other platforms down the track, it's it's just been such a such a supportive community to to kind of cut our teeth on and really get Wildflower into the hands of players. So yeah, couldn't have done it without them. Well, we would have done it, but it would have been a different game, if not a less amazing game, I think. <laughs> so with Wildflowers out now on Apple Arcade, and as you say, uh, coming to other platforms in the future, what does the future hold for the team at Studio Dry Dock now and Wildflowers petting forward? Well, I mean, our focus at this point is still just getting all the edges sanded off and also getting it to all the other platforms. There are so many players that are still dying to get their hands on it. So our focus in the short term will definitely be on that. Um, but we we honestly don't know what is next at this stage. We're considering quite a lot of other options, but I think we'll have more to share on that in the coming months about where we're going to go from here. We just, I don't know, I, I wasn't really prepared for just how enthusiastically the game would resonate with so many people. Um, we've we've got this really dedicated community on Discord, which has been very supportive of us and and very clear with what they what they hope to see in the future and what they would like to see from another game if we were to make one and what they would like to see if we did more to Wildflowers as well. And then there's also this, I mean, I'm just blown away every time I see somebody who's done fan art for the game. So it's obviously, it means something to people and that means something to me. And I'm just really keen to see how I can help support this community that's growing around the game now in the best possible way. And we've we've touched on a little bit of this throughout our chat in terms of the importance of diversity, the importance of representation, the importance of people to be able to tell their own stories. But I'd, I'd like you to bring things home by letting me know what power or what impact do you believe video games have on people? Why should people care about video games? Oh, I have so many thoughts about this. Um, <laughs> so I think people should – so. The glib answer is if you don't care about video games, your kids do. And so that's dangerous um, because there's this whole kind of avenue of, of information that's flowing into your kids' heads. So if you just think of, the, think of it as something that's not kind of worth your time, then it's like, it's like just letting them watch random movies. Of course, it's going to have an impact on the way that they think long-term because we are a product of what we consume. So that's one answer. You should care if you have kids for sure. The second answer is you should care because it's not just for kids. And so that's because, so our families have been very supportive of us while we've been building this massive game. And a lot of them have never experienced games before. And so they're asking a lot of questions and trying to get a better understanding of it. And I'm just blown away by their experience with getting to know about video games through our game. Because um, so one of them comes from an academic literature background. And she says, this is an important literary work. And I'm like, yes, because it's a literary work. So, <laughs> so I, think, I think it's been a long time, if ever, that video games were just, you know, I don't know, Tetris, something, something where not much is going on, especially when it comes to narrative games. Even beyond that, there's a lot that games have to say just like any other medium, and they can say it in a way that hits people differently. So, for example, we um, we have a butcher in our game, and you can butcher your animals, and that's not 
been done that I'm aware of very often in life simulation farming games. And people have very visceral reactions to it. Some people are like, I don't care. I need the meat. It's what I got to do. Uh, and other people are like, no, I'm not harming my animals. I'm like, okay, but we're playing a farming game and this is a part of farming life. So, you know, if you want the meat, something's got to happen to the cow. So <laughs> and I think that like you can't, you can't experience that through any other medium because you're not actually physically involved. But now I'm, I'm coming face to face with the idea of if I'm eating meat, then a cow is going to lose their life. Um, and obviously we, we've built the game in such a way where you, you don't have to murder a cow. You never have to murder a cow. You can play as a vegan if that's what you want to do. But I love that we have that capacity to make people think that way. And that's why people should care because it's a medium of its own that has its own way of saying things. Well, thank you so much for your time, Amanda. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. All things Studio Dry Dock, Wildflowers, The Sims and more. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, no problem at all. Thanks for chatting. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.